Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. I just feel like it's becoming a very forceful extremist agenda. Comply, do what we tell you, think what we think, say what we want you to say. It's not right that Kate Brown has taken on dictator authority because that's not a representative republic, that's tyranny. I'm just so sick of the radical left telling people like me who look like me that I can't talk about things openly. How can we actually get along? How can we actually prosper and move forward if we're not? If some of us are not allowed to talk about these really important topics, right? All right, everybody, thanks again for joining us for another episode. We're really excited today to have Senator Dallas Hurd, who is also the chairman, the new chairman, I should say, of the Oregon Republican Party. Uh, Senator Hurd represents District 1 in the Oregon Senate. That is Roseburg, and he is also originally from Roseburg. Uh, He's a successful local entrepreneur who's run a number of businesses. And uh, according to his bio, his family has been connected to the Roseburg area since the late 1800s, and Dallas has lived in the area for all of his life. So it was really exciting to have him on, especially as he just, uh, well, he's one of the more vocal senators, I would say, from both parties in the state. And he's also, because he's the new chair of the Oregon Republican Party, I think he has uh, some interesting insight to offer. And anyone who's listened to this show knows that uh, both myself and Ben have uh, pretty low expectations for the Republican Party. So it was good to sort of hear his initial <laughs> thoughts on how things will change. But Ben, what did you think of the episode? Oh, man. Um, okay, so I think that the episode was incredibly helpful for me to to get, kind of get inside a chunk of the population that I don't think is well understood, at least in Oregon. And so here's what I mean by that. Usually, when if you've been working in politics, and Alex, I know in DC, this is definitely a thing. When you talk to someone who is like either in elected office or working in the political realm, it's pretty easy to tell if someone is bold you or if they're being candid about what they think and feel or like like people who are on message they're trying to communicate a certain message to you dallas was not he did not have he was not trying to communicate a specific message he was answering our questions earnestly i think and like telling us what he believes and i disagreed with so much of what he said and you'll probably hear me struggle a little bit trying to figure out where to push back and where to kind of just allow him to speak his mind. But like, particularly on the COVID stuff where, which is where the interview starts, right. He has a very different view about like whether he should be required to wear masks and whether there should be consequences for businesses who don't follow the required protocols and whether there should be consequences for individual citizens who file complaints against businesses who don't like, we get into a lot of that where Senator Hurd has been in the news and uh, it was a, it was a fascinating conversation. What did, what did you think? Yeah, and he had some very sharp words for the news review, which yes. uh, looks to be. A, I even I looked on their website. They have, I think, over ten members of staff, which is pretty impressive for a local newspaper too. So I don't know how long the paper's been around, but clearly, uh, at least for their readers, they're doing something right because they're still functioning. Whereas if you've listened to our show, you know that local journalism is basically on the downfall. But uh, yeah, he had very harsh things to say about certain stories that were written about him over there in terms of the Citizen Against Tyranny group, which he's been involved with. And we actually did, for fairness, reach out to the News Review asking for comment, basically on some of the allegations that he makes against the News Review in the episode, uh, which they declined to comment, but we did want to reach out to them just to be fair. Yeah, a lot of the episode focused on COVID as well as with that group. I was hoping we would get more into what the actual agenda looks like for the Oregon Republican Party going forward. I think you had a great question asking him basically how 
the Republican Party wins in places like Multnomah County and just kind of bigger cities in general. And he, his response was basically, well, we don't, we can't do it alone, or I can't do it alone, which was, you know, he's, he's new into the job. I'm sure kind of those details will get fleshed out, but I hope that we can come back to some sort of agenda where we can, as Oregon Republicans, appeal to a broader sect of the population and actually start competing in some of these places, which Democrats, I think, have basically controlled for the past 30 or 40 years at this point. But one really interesting thing then, and maybe you can provide a little insight, is at one point he did actually multiple times defend Senator Hernandez, who, from my understanding, is a Democrat who was accused of sexual assault or uh, misconduct, basically by a number of, of women, either in the legislature or in his own personal life. And he actually came out and defended him and said that he should still be contributing to the conversation in Oregon, which I thought was fascinating because I can't think of one Republican member or Democratic member on the national stage who would defend another member from allegations of like that. So, I mean, what did you think of that, Ben? Well, and you haven't heard really anybody on the Oregon level defend former Representative Hernandez that I'm aware of. So I agree that was a fascinating moment. And it came up because I asked him the question, he says that there's been no, that he's the same guy he was when he first joined the House of Representatives several years, six or eight years ago or whatever it is. My question to him was like, when you first joined, you had really close relationships with Democrats and you seemed like interested in working across the aisle. And now you're sort of calling them punks and elitists and fools. And he did, his rhetoric in our interview was not at all like that, I'll say. He was, he was actually proactively talking about building bridges. And, you know, I think he used inappropriate language a couple, like when we get to the end of the episode and how he categorized people. But I do think his intent or what his intent would be to build those bridges. But I use the example of like, I think in one committee hearing, this would, was when I worked in the legislature, he literally referred to represent, then Representative Hernandez as like a brother to him or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And from there, he kind of made the leap of like, you know, basically saying he should still be part of the conversation. He's got a lot to contribute. And he even said that he thought Representative Hernandez, who again was like a liberal Democrat from Southeast Portland, should like mm-hmm. somehow provide insight or help to him as a Republican party chair, which I, it was just, a, it was a really interesting, like that's, it was, it was just interesting to hear. And I, I'm honestly still processing what I think it means, but I think it's, it, it was sort of his own way of sort of standing against cancel culture is probably like, I think he was trying to say like, Diego shouldn't be canceled because of the thing that happened. Meanwhile, Representative Hernandez resigned because the conduct committee who conducted a very, very thorough investigation and heard from multiple witnesses, including over Zoom, found him to have, well, they they didn't actually vote on it, but it was clear that, in my opinion, that they were going to remove him for the first time a member would be removed. And so, yeah, like that was, we didn't dive into the details there. Like I have some thoughts on that. I imagine you have some thoughts on that, but it was just interesting that like the newly elected chair of the Republican party is defending the recently ousted liberal Southeast Portland Democrat. Yeah, and I think that goes to show that people should definitely be paying attention to uh, Senator Hurd because I think if a couple of moments like that just happened on the podcast, I'm curious if what will happen is he feels more comfortable into the role, the outreach sort of starts, and he starts rolling out an agenda, basically starts recruiting candidates. What do those candidates look like? We didn't really get into that. So yeah, I think that we'll probably want to have the senator back in a future episode just to check in basically how things are going in the coming months or so. But yeah, overall, definitely some interesting stuff and quite a variety of topics were were discussed. So yeah, we hope that you guys will enjoy the episode and make sure to subscribe and give us five stars and we'll see you in the next one. Thanks, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. Today, we're really excited to have Senator Dallas Hurd join us, who is the state senator from Roseburg, as well as the new Oregon GOP chairman. Senator Hurd, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, good. It's it's uh, sunny in Oregon in May, so always a good day when we're having that. Uh, but yeah, Senator Herbert, really excited to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit more about your vision for the Oregon GOP, some recent news stories around you, and kind of what your vision is for the future of the Oregon Republican Party and how conservatives can basically fight back from the super minority that they're in right now. But before we get a little bit more into that, could you just tell us a little bit more about your background, why you decided to run for ORGOP chair, and why you just got involved in politics in general? Uh, You know, the genesis for me of getting into elected service was really, um, you know, growing up in the Douglas County, Southwest Oregon region. I've just watched big government, um, what I would consider elitist special interest groups really just kind of shut down the working class community that I'm born and raised in. I'm high school educated, didn't go to college. And so I feel like I can really relate to the mass majority of the people I serve. Uh, my district in Southwest Oregon is 70 plus percent, no college or, or little to no college anyway. And so, you know, watching watching my community go from one of the strongest, most uh, financially independent communities in the entire world to one of the, frankly, one of the most struggling, at least in America at this point, economically speaking, and just how that's come about. It's just really fueled my fire to get involved. It sparked my interest. You know, a lot of folks look at politics and they say it, they, it's almost like they treat it like it's Hollywood for nerds or something like that, but it's it's life. That's what it is. I mean, it's, these are the people, these are the men and women that govern our society. In a lot of ways, they shape our society. And so I was never comfortable with letting someone else do that without my influence and my input. So um, later, when I became an adult and I had graduated from high school and started my own business and the economy started to tank just a few years after I graduated high school during the, the big recession we had back in 08 through 12, I started to go from farming to landscape construction simply just by laying the sod that I was growing, which is rolled up weed-free grass that you grow on a farm, cut it, take it to somebody's house, and boom, they got a lawn. Well, people were asking me, hey, do you want to lay this stuff for us? And I found that I could make a lot more money by laying it that I could even grow it, plus just adding that on to the income of selling it alone. It made it a, a much more profitable endeavor to where I could continue to pay my bills. And so I got a $2,000 letter in the mail uh, with a fine, $2,000 fine from the state of Oregon saying that I had been uh, accused of landscaping without a license. Didn't even know that was a thing at the time. And from there, it just kind of took off and I wanted to get involved in the state regulatory side of things. And that's what's brought me to the legislature. And then uh, pivoting into running for ORP chairman, um, you know, as a millennial and a, a young father with two young sons. Uh, I'm very much rooted in Oregon, and I'm very concerned about the direction that we have been going. I've been in the legislature for six plus years, and just I just feel like it's becoming a very forceful extremist agenda. I'm not a I'm not a fan of extremist agendas, whether left or right. I don't believe in using government to force my neighbor against their will. I very much believe in balance and freedom, uh, live and let live. So I'm very libertarian in that aspect. Um, I have my own thought process on social issues and so on and so forth. But as long as my neighbors are willing to accept me having my own thoughts, I'm more than happy to uh, embrace and accept the fact that they have theirs. It doesn't matter how different they are. And so from the party perspective, I just feel like between the two major parties, the Republican Party is the one that best uh, fits my way of looking at life. And so from there, I just want to grow it into an organization that really is invested in community. It's not just a political party. It's not a social club. It's an actual organization about helping men and women become educated in what's going on in their government. And from there, you got to really get involved at the grassroots level of harnessing the energy, passion, and talents of the people, the men and women, and the children throughout those communities that make up a more Republican thought process and really just helping them figure out how to get plugged in, whether it's running for elected office, 
helping candidates that already are, all the different mechanisms that really make up a successful political machine. And for the most part, the party just really hasn't been that in my time in elected service and probably the decade even previous to that. So it's got to be a new day, a new day of change. And really, I'm just hoping to kind of take us in a direction where our brand here in Oregon kind of stands apart. I don't want us to be labeled by whoever the Republican nominee is for the presidency. I don't want to be labeled by who the national party uh, shapes themselves to be. I want us to represent who we are here in Oregon. Yeah, you said something really interesting before there, Senator Hur, and something we talk about on this podcast a lot, which is sort of a national realignment of where the GOP base is drifting away from the traditional upper middle class and middle class suburban voter and drifting more towards representing and electing folks more in sort of the working class. And I mean, you really saw that. I mean, the shift has been going on for a while. It just really wasn't talked as as much until you saw President Trump elected and a lot of these white working class voters really carry him to the presidency in some of these traditional blue wall states such as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And so you've basically, and I was listening to a couple of your interviews before, and you've attacked people before, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party as elitists. I think that you also said that members of the rich and the wealthy are destroying some of our communities. Can you just talk a little bit further about uh, what exactly do you think that sort of elites and, and things like that, what are the policies that they're pushing for that you disagree with that you really think are hurting working class people? Well, so, yeah, I mean, I want to make the, the Republican Party the party of the working class. I'm not a socialite. I'm not an elitist. Uh, I wear blue jeans, uh, oftentimes ones with holes that were not there by the designer side of things. <laughs> they were they were earned, so to speak. You're not and, wearing Abercrombie and Fitch? Well, I, I, haven't, I have in the past, but I just uh, haven't got Uh-oh. <laughs> I haven't kept myself in the kind of shape that I would be worthy to wear them at this point. <laughs> so, um, anyway, plus they're just too expensive, frankly. So anyway, the point is, is that, um, yes, the elitists are a problem. They hide in um, all, all sorts of different circles under different tents. They are not just Democrats. They are not just Republicans. They're a unique breed. Some people start out as elitists. Some people um, seek to be them and become them later in life uh, through immense success and whatnot. I'm, I'm not anti-success. I'm pro-freedom, pro-success. But where I often see them rear their ugly head is in the, in the halls of legislation, whether it be here in the Oregon Senate or the Oregon House or Congress, for that matter, is regulatory legislation in the form of market share domination. They use backdoor tactics to promote certain types of legislation or, interestingly enough, appear not to oppose. And so through a vacuum, they create these outcomes where their corporate lobbyists, the money they invest the things they fight, the things they don't fight, systematically create a situation where small business, mom and pop operations, you know, uh, minority communities of, of every shape and size become disproportionately affected and oppressed through big government regulation and legislation. And the ultimate winners in the end are Home Depot, Walmart, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, the, big, the big conglomerate power companies and whatnot. Um, you and I, the non-super elites, we lose every single time. And so it's uh, it's a hard it's a hard thing to find and to really discover. Frankly, it's taken me six plus years of being in the legislature to kind of piece together what I feel like is this fence shadow entity that divides us. It's hard to really define and just lay out in simple terms in a short conversation for people. This is who it is. This is what they do. This is where they show themselves. This is how they're hiding here and there. So it's a very difficult problem to address. Um, but I think it can be fixed through bringing working class men and women. And listen, going to college does not make you an elitist. 
Um, an elitist is someone for me who is very much part of the, the big powerful social network. Um, the Ivy League is great for pumping out elitists. Um, again, coming out of the Ivy League doesn't make you evil or anything like that, but it's really a, an idea. It's, it's, a, it's a thought process that these people, when you have in-depth discussions with them, or if you become trained to hear what they say, to pick out the words they use in their public speeches, they very much see you and I as just kind of the worker bees and we're the ants on the ground here to kind of do their bidding. And, you know, as long as we don't put up too much of a fight and just let them manage things as the way that they see it should be done, then we can all get along. But if you seek to challenge them, if you seek to have your own true will, your own true opinions and forge your own true destiny, that's when we're going to have a problem is the way they see it. And I run into it all the time. And like I said, sadly, it's Republicans and Democrats. Senator, I want to ask you a bit about, you alluded to your evolution or your transformation since you've been in, in the, I think you were first elected to the House in 2014, started in 2015. And I remember you then as, and maybe you can shed some light on this, but I think you had some close relationships with Democrats in the State House. I remember, in fact, I think it was Representative Fernandez who you, you described as like having a very close relationship with. But then recently, over the last year or so, you've been making headlines for um, some more aggressive language, you know, using the elitist language, calling legislators punks or fools. And it seems, you know, and, and media is referring to you as far right wing or extreme right wing legislator. Do you see yourself as having made a transition further to the right or against bipartisanship because of what you've seen? Or how would you describe what you've learned or how you've grown since you arrived in the legislature? Great question. So yeah, a lot of the headlines and a lot of the stories you've seen about me the last four or five months, I call it historic fiction. Um, yeah, I've said, I've made comments about not Democrats specifically, but about the elitists, the folks that are really ruining our society and really bringing a lot of pain and poverty to our children's lives. People that don't have any advocate, people that don't have the finances or the education or the political clout to defend themselves. I do call them fools. I do call them Punks, I don't use that word very often, um, uh, but I, uh, I have used some strong language to define some of these folks because I have nothing but contempt for them because I know what they're really about. I see it. I see behind the curtain uh, the ugly of ugly um, every single day. I don't really feel like I've changed much at all. I'm really just a mother bear in male form. My children, their peers, your, if, you, if you gentlemen have children, um, they're what matter to me. Being popular, uh, being the, the favorite amongst the elitists or amongst the elected officials was never high on my list. I wouldn't make the top 50. Being popular has never been something I've really cared about. Doing what I believe is right is all that matters to me. It's the only thing that helps me sleep at night. And I do have a hard time sleeping, not because I don't believe I'm doing what is right, but because there's just so much evil out there that I know I'm going to be faced with every single day. The worst thing about Sunday evenings is that I know Monday morning is coming and it's another really hard week where I'm going to be oppressed and perse persecuted in my endeavor and standing up for the weak and the few. So I have still friends that are Democrats. There's still several Democrats that I talk to on a frequent basis on the phone on an individual basis. Sadly, we've seen what I believe is a radical shift in the Democratic Party. Um, to where they're using much more forceful tactics to push their way. For, for one, I'm not even on the Senate floor. I'm having to sit up in the gallery um, because I'm not welcome on the Senate floor if I'm going to not wear a mask. And so my people's voice of 140,000 constituents right now is being heavily restricted because it, it, I'll put it this way. I wear a mask all over the place. I still wear a mask in this building. I wear a mask into every single private facility or private place 
uh, a business or residence until it's clear that I don't have to or that that person that owns it or those people that manage it don't care if I wear one or not out of respect for them. If I've said it on the Senate floor here in the, the, the Oregon Senate, that if they would just ask people to wear masks, I would gladly wear my mask. But when my government starts telling people, you will do this or else, and in this case it was, they're gonna use force, they're gonna find me, um, threats behind the scenes of expelling me from the Senate for not wearing a mask on the Senate floor have been levied against me in private conversations. This is really ugly stuff, this is nasty stuff. Um, and so it really pushed me to a position of defense and standing strong against um, what I consider fascism. And like I said, it's not just Democrats. There are elitist Republicans who either uh, are okay with this stuff and promote it through non-direct, honest, open means, um, or at the very least, they just don't wanna put up a fight because they wanna get along with people rather than defend freedom and liberty for all people. So it's just a really tough time right now. I'm hoping we're gonna see a reversal from all this, what I consider fascist tactics of comply, do what we tell you, think what we think, say what we want you to say, or else it's going to be this, this, and this. That is not going to end well. Uh, well there are people, yeah, go ahead. I want to follow up on that. You, One of the things that Alex and I, there's a bunch of articles I'm sure you read about the Citizens Against Tyranny group. And this is a group that um, you were cited as one of the leaders or people that the, the members of the group look to and one of the controversial tactics that I believe you were um, supportive of was if, a, if a, a member of the public reported a group for not following the COVID-19 requirements that were from OHA, CDC, or the governor's office, that then there would be a list of names of people who were confirmed, not, not sort of, not suspected, but confirmed to have filed these complaints. And it reminded me of there was a group of folks on the left who wanted to create a sort of blacklist of Trump administration employees. So folks like Alex couldn't get a job after Trump left office because they wanted to put a black mark on them. How is what Citizens Against Tyranny was doing? It, the, the articles talked about these two senior citizen women who were fearful of their safety because folks weren't wearing a mask and then got put on this sort of online target practice message board. Why are those things different? And isn't that kind of, isn't that contrary to what democracy should be about? And our, our you know, you just talked about freedom and, uh, you know, ability to have liberty in our country. Is there dissonance there for you or, or explain your thinking on that? Yeah, no, and thank you for asking the question because I've got a real big problem right now back in my local community with a lot of corrupt elected officials and the owners of the media in that community are intertwined with those folks. I've been banned from my local radio station of being able to come out and actually give my side of the story of this for the last four months. They will not let me come on the radio and speak. Um, and I have, I have evidence of that, um, facts to prove it. So a little bit of history there to correct the record. Cause again, I talked about historic fiction earlier over the last four months. So I still have no idea who those two senior ladies are. Honest to goodness, never met them, never talked to them. I've asked the newspaper who created this salacious story really out of vengeance because the month previous to that article, I had started to say publicly that I really felt like the news review um, was not good for our community because they were constantly writing divisive articles, creating all this angst in our community, constantly pitting neighbor against neighbor for profit for themselves. And the news, um, the news review is Roseburg's newspaper. Yes, that's correct, sir. Owned by the same person who owns Brook Communications, which is all the radio stations in our community. So you've got basically a monopoly in that aspect. Plus that same person owns 
a retail business, half of a retail business with one of our county commissioners. So they're all kind of intertwined. And I'm very much not the friend of those guys at this point, because I, I call out the truth when I find it, when I, the way I see it. So Citizens Against Tyranny, it's a grassroots effort and collaborative effort of the smallest of the small business owners and their employees. So people that own a mom, mom and pop um, restaurant, you know, with like five employees, right? It's those types of folks that came together in a volunteer effort to try to help the community get back open and stay open. We all try to be respectful of people's concerns about COVID-19 and whatnot, but there has to be mutual respect. If someone is truly fearful uh, about getting COVID-19, then they need to stay out of a place they're concerned about. They need to order their stuff through online means. They need to have, there's so many different options, whether it's Home Depot, restaurants, grocery stores, pharmacy. There's like literally every option you can think of for people to get what they need without infringing upon the rights of other citizens to actually live their lives, keep a job going, pay for their families, pay for their community to keep going. And so that's all we were saying was, hey, it's not right that Kate Brown has taken on dictator, dictator authority because that's not, that's, that's not a representative republic. That's not freedom. That's not liberty. That's tyranny. That's what it is. And so the way to push back against it, some but, of the- but aren't, aren't the, doesn't the Oregon constitution allow for emergency powers for the governor in situations like this? And I think the courts have upheld that sort of um, justification. So here's the thing though. I don't really care what's, you know, a bunch of people in black robes say that were appointed by the same governor that they're giving this dictator, dictator authority to. The fact of the matter is, yes, there are provisions within the state constitution for her to do something similar to what she's done, but it's clearly been abused. It's been going on for far too long. To say that, that the, uh, the governor, the elected governor of a free people can just basically make up from one day to the next what she's going to enforce, what she's not, she's, what she's not going to enforce, what rights you had yesterday are now washed away tomorrow. That's, that's not a representative republic. That is not a constitution protected republic. That's, that's a dictatorship. That's what it is. And that's not what America can be if we're going to have any kind of if we're going to have a society that's actually going to thrive and be able to get along and have mutual respect and true tolerance, we can't allow some people to have that kind of concentrated authority. I, it, it wouldn't matter if, to me if it was Abraham Lincoln or Ronald Reagan. I'd resent them just as much as I do Kate Brown if they were using this kind of authority. I would never support it. So party is irrelevant for me in that respect. But with Citizens Against Tyranny, what happened there was the newspaper completely lied and misrepresented so many different aspects of what they wrote in that article. I never supported just going out and going after individual people who turned in one person or one group or one business once or twice. It was the whole concept was about people. And there's several confirmed people in our community that it's a hobby for them to turn businesses in. We've got people that are turning in 40, 50, 60 businesses all on their own. That's one individual. And we have dozens of individuals that are doing that. They just go down the street, turning in person after person, after person, after person. The folks who, who were, you know, weren't their employees weren't wearing masks or falling. So those kinds of things like the, the COVID-19. No, not, not, not always. No. I what mean, that's what, the, that's what, what the allegation is. That's what the allegation is, but that no, that's not always been the case. It's turning community against itself in the name of public health. That just doesn't work. You don't want to turn society into some militia group that's going around attacking each other because Kate Brown said, well, this should be illegal tomorrow and this should be illegal tomorrow. And I don't think you should be getting together more than six people for Thanksgiving or Christmas. So, I mean, this is, remember, Kate Brown is the, is the person who promotes this kind of stuff. If you, this is from her. If you see your neighbors gathering six or more for Thanksgiving, you should call the state authorities and turn them in. I mean, 
my gosh, people. So with our situation, all that was ever um, supposed to happen was confirmed that they've turned in 20, 30, 40, 50 businesses or individuals showing a pattern of malicious intent to just abuse their community and abuse the, the tools that I guess the governor of Oregon has given them to turn their neighbors in against themselves. Um, and simply the community should know that these people are out there doing this. And that if you're gonna be attacking people like this, maybe you should, those businesses can then choose to not serve them. Because I would ask you this, why would you want someone to come into your home that's publicly been confirmed is just coming there to attack you and hurt you. What, what, that's freedom. You should have the choice to not let someone who's coming in with malicious intent attack you. Um, those two old ladies um, were caught up in this storm, not because there was an intent by that group. And, and remember, I don't have any control over the group. I don't have any control over these folks. My community came to me in desperation and said, Senator, we're losing our businesses. We're losing our homes. We, the owners, we, the employees, we're losing everything because Kate Brown says we don't have the right to be open. We don't have the right to earn an income. But the public labor employee unions, they haven't missed a paycheck, whether they're working at full capacity or not. The grocery stores are open. All these different kinds of businesses are open, not being infringed upon. Why, why are we being persecuted? Why are we being discriminated against? Why do we not have rights all of a sudden just because Kate Brown says we don't? And so do you do you. I'm, okay, so half a million people have died from COVID and uh, or COVID related causes. And the governor and OHA and CDC would say these requirements about wearing masks and social distancing, this is literally about saving people's lives and preventing the spread of a disease that is, you know, wreaked havoc. It seems like there's a bit of you that, that questions the legitimacy of the, or, or maybe where those orders are coming from and that you're suspicious about the intent of the, the institutions themselves. Do you disagree about the sort of public health side or is it just sort of the process of how we arrived at those that you have an opposition to? Because you've already said you're fine wearing masks. Um, and that's what many of these complaints were about, I think. So I'm a little bit, I'm curious about- the... that's, that's not what they were about. So wearing masks, social distancing, that's a separate issue from you're not allowed to be open, right? Like you can't earn an income that that's like there, there was no there's been multiple times where these communities some of these communities haven't been open in many many months where they're not being given an option for the most part to actually stay open earn an income and continue on they're not being given an option that's reasonable not even remotely reasonable of how to keep their doors open and let people come in they're they're not being given an option to do social distancing they're not being given an option to do social distancing plus wear a mask uh, the governor has on multiple occasions just said, you will, depending on what type of business you are, you will not be open and serve the public. Gyms and those kinds of things. Correct. Gyms, diners, all sorts of uh, uh, establishments like that. But yet, like I said, you know, the DMV is open in a diminished capacity. Grocery stores have not been closed because they've been deemed essential, which I would agree they are. <laughs> they are essential, right? But I mean, I go into any grocery store, Walmart or otherwise, and my gosh, people are touching stuff, putting it back on the shelf. I mean, the produce section, for example, the concentration of foot traffic per square foot is, in, is considerably more dense than a in a typical diner. The interaction, rubbing shoulders, like I said, grabbing something off the shelf and then putting it back, that kind of cross exposure and contamination and whatnot is significantly more high risk than most of these restaurants, especially if they're practicing like a, you know, a 50% capacity model and whatnot. 
And so, and again, the data that I have looked at from the state itself does not support these draconian tactics from the governor. And again, I will point to, it's the governor herself who said, you know, if, again, you know, people look at a guy like me for saying, hey, if you're turning in your whole community, the community should know it so they don't have to serve you. So you don't have the opportunity to make their lives a living hell just because it's a hobby for you to, I mean, if, let me ask you this. If, yeah. if a person is really concerned about getting COVID-19, why are they going into an establishment to turn them in if they're really concerned about what's happening in that establishment? Wouldn't they stay home or go somewhere else that they're not concerned about? I, I mean, I think one of the women was at a grocery store and that was that was one of the issues but she needed to go shopping and saw employees not wearing masks. And so she called OSHA and said, hey, they're not following the guidelines. Yep. But like I said, I, I, I wasn't the one that did anything there. It, it's been it's been because yeah, I'm yeah. I'm the I'm the target right of a malicious leftist media um, who just wants headlines and just wants to attack me because I've been calling them out for for what they've been doing in my community for so long they completely misrepresented reality I even asked them in an email I said I'd really like to be able even though I didn't do this and and by the way uh, in that circumstance those names were put up by one individual. No one else knew it had happened. No one else had given approval to it. The second we found out that it happened, it was taken down like immediately. It was just two random people's names. There was no pictures. There was no addresses. There was no phone numbers. There were certainly no calls for people to attack them, whether through social media or phone calls or anything like that. Nobody even knew this was a thing until the news review called those two ladies, pumped them full of, of a bunch of misinformation, got them really upset and concerned so they could create, so they could generate salacious, angry, hateful uh, statements and quotes against me. Then after they had went around and talked to all these people that didn't know what was really going on, and I don't, I don't blame them, by the way. I don't blame those two ladies for any of this. It's not their fault. I really regret that it happened to them, even though I didn't directly cause it to happen. It just, I had nothing to do with it. Um, and I did everything I could to diminish any kind of an impact on them. Um, but the once the news review had made all those calls and gotten all those quotes, then the last stop, you know what the last stop was? Me. I was the last person they called before they went ahead and sent it to print. If the news review had not done what they did with the malicious intent that they have, the, the it's, it's, it's wicked what they did, okay? They used those poor ladies to push their vengeance on me they use those women because no one literally knew who those women were before that article. No one did. Their names were up on that uh, website, as I understood, for about three hours mm. uh, on a page that nobody even knew anything about before that article. Nobody even really knew what Citizens Against Tyranny was before that news review article. They used those women to hurt me. And they didn't hurt me in the end. I don't care what people think about me. They can think whatever the heck they want. I'm not, I'm not here to be liked. I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to champion the cause of the weak, the few, the innocent, those who have no power, no recourse, no voice. Well, and Senator, I think that's actually a great transition into our next topic, because I know you, your staff said that you're running on a schedule. Uh, so you were just elected to become chairman of the Oregon GOP. So have you actually started that position yet? Or are you, when does that actually begin? Yeah, I've been in it now. Uh, let's see. What's today's date? Is it the 5th? I've been in it about a month and a half, just shy. Okay, so yeah, and that's one thing you were saying is folks, you know, attacking you, and I'm sure that those attacks will continue to come as your profile across the state can, continues to grow. So I did want to ask one question about 
why did you decide to run in the first place? Did you, you know, did you see incompetence basically from the, because I, I, from my understanding, you also ran with a slate of candidates. It wasn't necessarily just you saying, okay, I'm going to run by myself. You know, I want to replace Bill Currier, the former chair. Uh, you actually recruited and sort of coordinated with the slate of candidates to try to basically get rid of the old folks. What was exactly the reason behind that? Did you all have a different vision? Did you think that there was inadequate management? I'm just kind of curious of what the thoughts were behind a slate of candidates in particular. Sure. And before I move on to that real quick, Ben, thank you for the question about Citizens Against Tyranny. I really do appreciate it. And I, you know, I'd be willing to talk with you about it at length offline later too, because I really want the truth to get out there about what happened, what's the intent of it. That whole thing is about raising the community up, donating money to these restaurants and their employees to keep them in business. It's about community. It's not about hurting anybody. It's quite the opposite of that. So thank you for that question. I really do appreciate it. Um, on the ORP front, for me, it just came down to, I felt like there was no leadership that's going to tick off some of the people that got beat, some of the people that are still around throwing rocks at me behind the scenes. That's totally fine. Uh, it is what it is. I run very unique campaigns. You won't be able to find campaigns where I've ran for anything, where I'm out there calling out my opponents by name or calling them out through um, throwing rocks at them and saying, well, you know, did you know they did this? And did you hear that? Did you hear they said this to this person? And oh, they got this in their past and all that kind of stuff. I don't do that. You can't find one example of that. My opponents attack me maliciously. They lie, they they, they cheat, they do everything they can think of to just hurt my reputation because they got nothing good to run on from a substance standpoint. And sadly, this wasn't any better. The slate that we put together was a group of individuals that I felt like had the character. Um, that was what was most important to me. They had the character and the reputation of character through their actions and leadership that I felt like we could run a good slate of candidates and make a, a strong case for why the party needed to make a, a new change and a new direction. And we were successful in that. I just worked myself into the grave. You know, we had the legislative session started right as that campaign was really hitting its stride. You know, about a, it seems like we had... Uh, it had been about a month, I'd say the last month of that campaign, I was in full legislative session. And as you can imagine, putting an additional 6,000 miles on my car, traveling all over the state, meeting with people in person, took a heavy toll on me while also taking phone call meetings, in-person meetings, you know, being in legislative committees all day, all week, plus just trying to maintain being a decent father and decent husband on the weekends. It was not easy. And it's still hard, but we're making a transition into a better season now, I think. But um, yeah, it was a wild experience. I loved meeting all the men and women across the state that I got to know over this time because I'd never made that kind of broad regional travel effort before. I'd never had to. There was no reason to in the past. And um, what was consistent was we don't know what's going on. We don't have a directive. Um, no one communicates with us. Uh, we're not allowed to communicate with each other from county to county for the most part. Um, we're not raising money. We're not recruiting candidates. We're not helping candidates win for the most part. We're just not really doing much of anything. It, it's not to say that all the people that were there before are not good people. There's a lot of good people that either are not serving there now or still are. I don't want this to be a me versus them kind of thing because it's not about me. I couldn't care less about me. That's, that's easy to say. People that know me know that's the truth, though. This job pays zero, literally zero. Costs, it costs me money. Did you, I, I actually, Chris, do you think that, that that's an issue? I mean, one of the main, and, and just for total full transparency, yeah, I think it's I, it's completely fair to say as a Republican, I think that the Oregon GOP has completely failed basically on all levels. As you said, we don't recruit great candidates. We don't raise any money. 
We have two of the most competitive congressional districts in the country. And I mean, frankly, people, people laugh at us. I get text messages from my friends from DC all the time who are part of the squishy establishment to the far right Trump conservatives. And they're, all of them are laughing at us basically in the sense of, you know, embarrassments and things like that. We just don't put up good candidates. We can't compete in any of these districts that the national GOP really wants us to be able to compete in. So yep. I, I'm, I'm curious, and I totally agree with everything that you had said before. What do you think that that transition actually looks like? Some of it, I think, is having an actual apparatus with paid staff, maybe an executive director, things like that. And maybe that exists. I just don't know who those people are. But what's sort of your vision, just from the management and the structural side of what the Oregon GOP should actually look like? So we have an organizational chart that we created since I came in. That's something we didn't have before. There was no, when I inherited this um, a month and a half ago, it was like, okay, who's got the passwords? What are we doing? What are we not doing? I've been in the first six weeks just trying to figure out what the heck we actually have here and then put it together and start making it into something. And we've made some incredible progress in a very short amount of time. We've been recruiting to and recruiting and securing incredible new men and women, young and old alike, to come to this party leadership level and help me at an administration level, at, a, at an agency level, if you will, start taking this thing in a prolific, professional, political machine direction. And so right now we have no money to pay people to pay for professional folks. That's something that we will change in the future. I don't know if we'll ever transition to something where we've got a payroll, of, you know, a million dollars a year type organization, because I don't know if it's necessary, frankly. Um, but at the same time, if you want to get great people, you're going to have to pay some money from time to time. Because I mean, you look at it, how many people are crazy enough like me to be high school educated, working class, working in the legislature for $32,000 a year, getting your face kicked in all the time, and then take on a position that pays nothing to get a whole new level of getting your face kicked in from a different direction. How many people are crazy enough to serve at that level that can financially survive? It's only because I have incredible working class men and women running my small business. I'm the third highest paid person at my company. Okay, there's only four people at my company and my wife and I combined are the third highest incomer. Combined, we are third highest, meaning my two main people make more money than I do because I'm invested in people. I believe in networking. I believe in sharing responsibility and authority and most importantly, blessing. When you earn it, you should be blessed, right? I tell the people that come to work for me, you're not here to make me rich. We're here together to make each other rich. And um, that model works, right? So well, and, um, and for, for comparison for our listeners, the Democratic Party has in Oregon has a paid executive director, a paid development director, a paid technology person. You can see their staff on their website. It's a very robust organization with a lot of paid staff. So there's a, a big discrepancy between parties. Um, I know, Senator, you've got a meeting you've got to jump to, but one final question for you. Oregon is perceived as a blue state. The part of the state where you come from is very conservative. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the Zoom, you know, um, the history with the timber wars and the economies being ravaged through, you know, the Endangered Species Act and other regulations. But it seems to me Multnomah County, Clackamas County and Washington County, the Tri-County area, um, where most of the state lives by population, has been the biggest obstacle for Republicans winning statewide because they're, they're only getting 20 or 30 percent in those big counties, even though they're running up the scoreboard in the rural counties, um, they just can't penetrate, uh, you know, the 40% threshold in the tri-county area. What would you say is, what parts of your Republican agenda, your Republican party agenda, are going to resonate with voters in the sort of urban, suburban population center of the state that you think could help break through 
I think it's been since uh, a, a former friend of ours, uh, the, the deceased Governor Vicatia, that the Republicans have held the governorship, which was in the 1980s. So how do you break through the tri-county ceiling? Well, I can't do it alone, I can tell you that. We've got to broaden the base. We've got to broaden the discussion. We've got to broaden the issues that we talk about and focus on. We've got to get people, men and women, into our leadership level, and which is what I'm working on. People like Alexander Flores that uh, hails from the Hispanic community, uh, individuals like Larry Morgan, who's both a millennial and African-American and just a brilliant human being. The, we've got to get these kind of individuals who have a different perspective of life, both with the, they've grown up in the city versus small, you know, small rural area like me, different racial demographic uh, experiences than myself as ca primarily Caucasian. I'm not one to shy away from the conversation around race or sexuality or different faiths or all. I, I'm just so sick of the, what I consider to be the radical left telling people like me who look like me that I can't talk about things openly because to me that just flies in the face of actually trying to bring society together to become truly more tolerant to become actually more inclusive how can we actually get along how can we actually prosper and move forward if we're not if some of us because the way we look or where I was born or uh, the party I'm affiliated with are not allowed to talk about these really important topics right my chief of staff he's a dual citizen um, Mexico and the United States his family is uh, half from Mexico, half uh, from the United States. And so he's got incredible different perspectives, different cultural experience and whatnot that I flat out don't know about and understand until I get to have those good conversations with my very good friend. He's not my employee. He's the man. He's my right hand. He's, my, he's one of my best friends. And so him and I, because we have mutual respect, we can talk about our differences. We can talk about, and they're not differences that divide us. They're actually differences that make us both more complete. And because him and I don't let what's going on outside of our little bubble infringe upon our friendship and that open conversation, him and I get to have some great conversations. The former representative Diego Hernandez and I have had some incredible conversations about, you know, the similarities between the Hispanic community that he would claim rightfully so to largely be representing. That's, that's his family. That's his background. That's his people, right? He's taught me things. I've taught him things. We've both come together in conversation and legislative efforts in the past where we found like, my gosh, there's huge commonality here. There's huge opportunities for bridges. Um, the Hispanic community, for one, I, I love those folks. They're strong, passionate, talented, skilled, faith, you know, primarily faith-based, family-oriented type people that's like, oh my gosh, they're like the best of the best of the best uh, for a guy like me, you know, right? But taking the party in a direction where um, we recognize the value of other people and we don't just recognize it in private conversation, we start screaming it from the mountaintops and we show it by saying, hey, you know what? We recognize that we're a little too Caucasian, we're a little too rural, we're a little too old, we're a little too this, this and that, at a party leadership level. So we're, we want you folks from different demographics and different um, parts of life and whatnot, we want you to come into the party. We want you to have a seat, a seat at the table of power and we wanna help, we want you to actually have a voice to help us move this ship in a direction that's gonna be an answer and a solution party for all people, not just for the demographics I mentioned earlier that it currently is. And so I know that the people that I've grown up with and that make up the Republican party for the most part love people. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what faith they are. It doesn't matter what their economic situation is. Um, but we're always being misrepresented and mislabeled by politicians, but especially this media that just really seeks to divide us all. It doesn't matter who you are. They prey upon all of us. Republican, Democrat, they're coming for you. 
you'll, you'll see that if you really watch for it. They, they don't care whose lives they ruin. They don't care whose reputations they ruin. They don't care what productive conversations you're having that they ruin. They just want salacious headlines so they can get that clickbait so they can make more money, right? And that's the stuff that we got to stop. We got to quit letting this fence whether it's elitists or media that is the elitists divide us. We got to stop letting that happen because uh, the former representative and myself, we love each other. We're friends. We don't care that he's got brown skin and I've got white skin. He doesn't care that he grew up in the city and I grew up in the mountains of wherever. We care about our people. We're working class guys. We're here to find solutions for that child that doesn't have parents anymore. We're here to find solutions for that woman who's been beaten and abused and left behind by her community and and a former partner and whatnot, we're here to help communities come back together and be prosperous and successful so they don't have to depend on the government and the elite to get by in this life. That's what it's about. And so I don't have all the answers, guys. I probably never will. But I'm trying to find the people that collectively can help me find that collective answer. And I admit to you right here, right now, I am not enough. And so I need the Alexander Floreses. I need even though Diego Hernandez has been through a lot of different problems lately, I, I'm not going to be like everybody else and just say the man has nothing good to offer Oregon. He still has unique perspective and passion that a guy like me needs to hear from so that I can better serve Oregon as the chair of the Republican Party. So, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a really unpleasant road going forward for me because there's a lot of people who just don't want the truth to be talked about. They just want to shut down conversation. And so I'm hoping there's a day in the future where, you know, Ben, you, you labeled yourself as, as left of center. Alex, you've labeled yourself as right of center. I'm hoping there's a day where all of us can come back together and say, we want to be free. We want to have true mutual respect. We want to have prosperity for all. And we just want the society to be able to get along and move forward so we can all have a joyful outlook on what tomorrow is going to bring instead of this nasty, toxic culture war we're experiencing. It's just not good for anyone. Senator, I, uh, you mentioned your staff and your staff is probably going to kill Titus and I for letting this uh, this interview go long, but we really have appreciated the conversation and your time. In closing, where can people follow you, find out more about you, You know, keep in touch with you? What's the best way for listeners to be in touch? I'm trying to get better about that stuff. Dallas Heard Facebook is one way, but I, I we're going to start getting more uh, aggressive about you know like weekly updates and, and interaction that way. I'm not going to be someone that's going to interact with people on the comments section because I got too much work to do in service to my people to be able to do that and and the other at the same time it just doesn't work but I need to be getting my message out there of where I stand and where I want to take this stuff and then people can learn about us through the social media page obviously the Oregon Republican Party's website that's something we're going to be trying to take to a much bigger level so people can connect with us there and see what we're all about also listen if you're out there in Oregon and you want to be a part of something like we've been talking about today, please, please reach out to us. We want you. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. I don't care if you're red, orange, yellow. I don't care if you're gay. I don't care if you're straight. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you're a Christian. If you believe in freedom and liberty and you want a better tomorrow for our children, we want you. That's how it is. Right. Well, we will leave it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast, and we will see you next time. Take care, guys. 